This message is brought to you by this excellent church. We excel at reshaping people's values and reconciling men to God. You're about to hear peace and preach. Be blessed. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. What a faithful God. Praise God. Hallelujah. So, today we're going to be studying the scriptures on something that is of importance is of great charismatic value. Praise God. Uh, if you know the story of the Pentecostal, the rise of Pentecostalism, like, I, okay, I, th- I think I talked about it last Sunday, right? Um, Pentecostalism is uh, that denomination of, the, of Christianity that broke out from the Protestant Reform doctrine in the early 20th century. And it was centered around the gift of the Spirit, particularly the gift of speaking in tongues. Hallelujah. Uh, we've talked about the history before, so you can just check it out if you want to refresh your memory. But basically, Pentecostalism is actually centered around the gift of the Spirit. There were a lot of things that, of course, they already believed from their Reformed Protestant background, but the, the, the gift of speaking in tongues was very, very central. It was a kind of um, revival. Yeah, Azusa Street Revival that happened in California was kind of a revival of the consciousness or the belief in the gift of what we call, what we have traditionally accepted as a gift of speaking in tongues. Praise God. You know, so, and the people that even led the, the move, the people that even led the move, um, you know, that was basically what it was about for them. And they held the gift in high esteem. Um, they gave, get they held the gift in high esteem. They held, they held the gift in high esteem. It's also of historical and theological importance to recognize that um, their understanding of the gift of speaking in tongues when they had it was not um, glossolalia. It was inovalalia. So let's let's start from def- by defining the terms. Praise God. First Corinthians chapter fourteen. Let's start by dis- defining the terms. Open your Bible to First Corinthians chapter 14 and then I'll define the terms. What I mean by glossolalia, G-L-O-S-O-L-I-A, glossolalia, refers to, in the English dictionary, refers to people going, speaking in, under, um, it is people having, speaking ecstatically, right? Under um, the ecstatic mood. Um, speaking in um, <clears throat> speaking gibberish in an ecstatic mood. Praise God. Do you understand that? So people are saying words and phrases that are absolutely meaningless under the influence of the ex- uh, under an ecstatic um, ad- atmosphere. Do you understand? So um, it was is not you know the idea of glossolalia is not unique to Christianity. These are things that you need to know. You know if you go if you check Greek the Greek. History and mythology, you see that the priestesses of Delphi, the priestesses of um, um, some other goddesses, even far back as Canaanite um, gods, their priests and priestesses had such experiences where they are speaking ecstatically and they are speaking absolute gibberish. By absolute gibberish, I mean the words coming out of their mouth has no meaning in any sense. It's important you know the difference. It's not that they don't. It's not that they don't have. It's not as if um, they don't have desires in their mind that they are praying to their God. It's one thing that in your mind you have desires to your God. Do you understand that? It's another thing that the words coming out of your mouth, what you are enunciating, whether it has meaning or not. 
So the strict definitions of glossolalia is that the words coming out of your mouth are essentially meaningless in an absolute sense. Do you understand? Xenolalia just means speaking a language that the person beside you does not understand. Xenolalia means that what you are speaking has meaning. It is a language that somebody somewhere may understand or, may, you know, that somebody somewhere may understand. But the person beside you does not understand, so it is meaningless to the person. Do you understand that? So the first one is absolute meaningless. Glossolalia is absolute, absolutely meaningless language. Xenolalia is relatively meaningless language. Is my English too much? Is it? When we use the word relative, relative means things, something that can change based on the perspective of people. Do you understand that? Relative means something that can change based on the perspective of people. So if you say somebody is relatively rich, what we mean is the person is rich compared to some people. When we say someone is absolutely rich, what we mean is that there is no scenario where you compare the person that the person is not rich. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? That's just an example. So when we say absolute, absolute means in every situation, right, we can go into things like science and understand the theory of relativity and all that, um, special relativity and all that. You know, you discover that um, before, people thought that the speed of light was absolute. That means that the speed of light is the ultimately fastest thing. There's nothing faster than the speed of light. Do you understand that? And then Albert Einstein now came out, of, came out and found out that even the speed of light can be measured and the speed of light is even amenable to gravity. Do you understand that? Hence, you know, the, the theory of special relativity, E equals mc squared. So when you say something is relative, it means compared to somebody else. When you, some, when you say something is absolute, it means in every scenario. Do you understand that? Is that clear? So glossolalia is absolute gibberish. Um, xenolalia is relative gibberish. You know how to spell xenolalia? X-E-N-O-L-A-L-I-E. Hallelujah. Praise God. So, yes, as a pastor nerd that I am, it occurred to me that I cannot call myself a charismatic and I not settle this thing once and for all. So, for the past couple of weeks, I've been studying on this subject, digging and listening to what everybody has to say. After listening to what everybody has to say, I went as far back as listening to, as far as going towards man of God, John MacArthur had to say. <laughs> you know, listen to what everybody had to say and then I had to go read my own Bible for myself. Hallelujah. Because you cannot say you're a charismatic and this, you will not settle this thing once and for all. It has to be settled. It has to, you know, the theology around this thing must be sound irrespective of how you feel, irrespective of um, whatever kind of baggage you have. We have to, you have to settle it once and for all. So, having defined those terms and cleared everything from the beginning, the second thing I would like to ask you to do is that as we are going to go forward reading the scriptures, um, reading the scriptures and everything, I want you to um, get rid of every hermeneutic greed in your mind. Hermeneutic greed is hermeneutic assumptions that you have concerning your Bible study where you already have ideas of what a word means and you already assume what the word means. And then whenever you are reading that scripture, you read with those assumptions. So every time you read it, you still come out to the same conclusion. Humanistic grades are something that gets people stuck in their Bible study. I've told you the story of Martin Luther before. It was that humanistic grade that got him stuck. The guy was reading Romans chapter 1 verse 20. He said, ah, you know, the righteousness of God is revealed from, you know, the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteous shall, shall live by faith. 
and then um, the way the um, the church in the medieval period has always read it is that the righteousness of God that is revealed from heaven is like the righteousness of God that is a standard, right? That this is the righteousness of God that is a standard. And the just shall live by faith or the righteous shall live by faith means that anybody that is living by that standard has to live by a certain level of faith. Do you understand that? And that's the way it was. And the way that was, was stuck. And that's where everybody assumed. And then one day, he was reading his Bible and then he stepped back for a moment. And just realized that, ah, there's another way to see the righteousness of God as something else other than the quality of God's living, the quality of God's morality, but rather as referring to someone being right with God, someone being aligned with God. And that's where everything just scattered. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? So it's called the hermeneutic grid, where your mind already assumes what a word means, and then, you know, your mind gets stuck. One of the things that helped me in studying this scripture, which I would encourage you to do now, is to remove the word tongue from your mind. The word tongue is word that will come tradition from the King James Version, which is the first English, or let me say actually from the Geneva Bible, but, you know, whatever. The King James Version took it over and everything. The word tongue is... Um, ancient 16th century English that refers to language. But because it has become part of our Christian culture and lingo, we've been using the word since. But the world is changing. Human um, English dialect is changing, but we're still using that word. And so it tends to have a kind of confusion for people. The word tongue just means language. Do you understand that? That word tongue, glossy, just means Language is that simple. It just means language. Many of the Bible translations use that word tongue because we're used to it in you know, Christian culture and all that. But the word tongue just means language. So just set in your mind, right? So that's why I wanted to title the message another tongue before. But I discovered that even that another, in fact, my Bible, my church notes, they see another tongue that is written on it. But it's, you know, somewhere along the lines, I just say, I don't know, let me just call it another language because it's easier for you to understand. The word tongue just means language. Do you understand? Another language. In other languages. That's what it means. That's what tongue just basically means. We'll look at everything now. Praise God. So, what was the query? What is the thing that we're trying to clarify today? Is other languages, other languages, other tongues, other languages, is it glossolalia or is it xenolalia? Is it glossolalia? Is it xenolalia? When you look at reformed guys and orthodox guys, when they see us speaking in tongues, they love those memes of making fun of us charismatics. They will put memes and say, the first group of Christians, oh, how is it that we're hearing these people in our own mother tongue or our native language? And Pentecostals today. <laughs> oh my God. I, you know, it's funny to even me, praise God. Right? And that's because of their understanding of this matter. And then, even amongst us two, because if, if don't assume anywhere, don't assume any, any conclusion, just listen to, listen to the end. <laughs> now also, because especially if we are, if, if, you are, if you are sure that tongues is glossolalia, what it also does for you, if you are, um, you know, if you are, if you are someone that believes that glossolalia is, that tongues is just pure glossolalia, in that sense, what it does is that it also kind of 
drops your standard for praying. Right? You can just paste the ground and <clears throat> utter anything that comes from your, from your mouth. Now, interestingly, for someone like me that grew up in a very strong Muslim background with Muslim cousins and Muslim family members who were also exposed to a lot of Christian stuff, <clears throat> it's, very, very, it's very, usually very funny <laughs> when your Muslim cousins are speaking in tongues <laughs> and they are making fun of you. Praise God. Right? You guys have not experienced it before. Okay. Right. You guys have not, you have not, are not real Christians. <laughs> when you have um, Muslim cousins that make fun of you, they'll say, kako, 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 kiki, kako, kako, kiki, and they're, you know, making fun of, fun of, you know, your tongues and everything. And then if you're thinking, you ask yourself that, okay, <laughs> so what really makes this thing unique? Is it the utterance or the heart? And then folks will say, okay, it's not about the utterance because all of us are mumbling gibberish, but we have the renewed spirit, so our own renewed spirit is different, therefore um, the gibberish is the same, but the renewed spirit is different. Praise God. Praise God. Anyway, all kinds of thoughts. So it's important that this thing is something that we settle. It will make our theology more coherent, and it will make our prayer life also better. Praise God. And uh, the, um, the major scripture that talks about praying in another language, you know, in a more didactic term, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, like we all know. But the interesting thing about 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is that 1 Corinthians chapter 14 does not really provide first principles for a lot of things. Paul is speaking to certain people who already have a level of understanding of what he's talking about. So he doesn't, he doesn't go back to the first principles. He doesn't define the terms from the, from the foundation. He just goes ahead into teaching them stuff. Do you understand that? So what that means is that if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, with your own understanding of the words, you will always be correct, irrespective of what you read. Or no matter what you read, everybody goes to First Corinthians chapter 14 and they always see what they want to see. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? Because he doesn't define the terms in First Corinthians chapter 14, if you go there with your own definition, the interpretation you will see will end up being your own definition. Do you understand that? Because he doesn't define the terms. He doesn't define the terms. So what happens is that people already have an understanding of what other tongues means from other scriptures based on the understanding of other scriptures. And then they go to that chapter with that understanding of other scriptures. Right? So the Lord ministered something to my heart when I was preparing. First Corinthians 14. Look at verse 20. It says, Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, with other tongues, tongues, and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to these people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Hallelujah. Even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So, if, and it just occurred to me that, you know, it's very, very funny how we get stuck with these hermeneutic grids in our minds and everything. It's covered that, see, if you, want to, if you want to understand anything in the New Testament, and you want to understand it well, hmm, the best way, to do the, you do the hard work. You won't do the hard work of just listening to what other pastors have preached and then just jump to the New Testament and say what you want to say. The hard work of rightly dividing the word of truth. With, when Paul told Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth, he was not even talking about the epistles. I hope you know. Sure you know. So that means that you have to do the hard work of actually going to the Old Testament and starting from there. And start from there. Do you know why? Re- remember that when the apostles are speaking, 
they are speaking from their understanding of the Old Testament, not the epistles. So right now, forget everything you know about the New Testament. And let's go back to what Paul and Peter were reading. What the Jews understood. Then from there, we will now go into the New Testament and receive the Holy Spirit. And see what happened physically. Do you understand that? Do you understand what I just said? We'll go back to the Old Testament and see what the Jews saw. We'll see the commentary that Apostle Paul and, you know, we'll see what those guys were reading. We'll see what they were understanding, what they understood of the Old Testament on the subject matter, then come into the New Testament and receive the Holy Spirit and understand it based on that rightly dividing the word of truth. Do you understand that? So Paul does something here telling us that 1 Corinthians chapter 14, just like every other thing in the New Testament, is from the Old, such that even tongues actually was prophesied by Isaiah that God will speak to people, right, a time was coming when God will speak to people through other tongues and through the lips of foreigners. So we're going to open it and read it now. The question that we're trying to understand now is what did Paul and the apostles understand by, by other tongues or other languages and the lips of foreigners? What did it mean to them? What did the Old Testament say about the tongues of foreigners? Church all together. So let's open it. So let's read Isaiah chapter 28. If you read from verse 1, eh, Isaiah chapter 28 is actually like God is saying, is um, shaming the leaders of Ephraim and Judah. He's shaming the leaders of Ephraim and Judah. Let's read it from the beginning. It says, verse 1, Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim, Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on, a, on the head of a fertile valley. So these heads, these rulers of Ephraim, this elite of Ephraim, were very proud of their state, of their world city. As at the head of a fertile valley, they were, they were proud about their city that they had set up, right? So that city, the pride of those laid down by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. So that city that they are proud of is going to flow, is going to throw it to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, will be like feeds ripe before harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they will swallow them. So this is what God is going to do to this proud Ephraim, Ephrathites and Judah, and Judah and Judah. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath to the remnant of his people. So these people that are taking pride in their city, God himself will now be their pride. He now says he will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gates. And, and these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. So this is the reason why God is proclaiming woe or shame on these rulers of Ephraim and Judah. Because these guys are drunk. They are drunk, addicted to wine, and they are not in their correct senses. So they stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger from seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. Hallelujah. Do you see that? So even when they're supposed to be doing their work as prophets and priests and leaders, they are full of wine and they are staggering and they are, they are not in their right senses. All the tables are covered with vomit and there is no spot without filth. So these are people that God is trying to talk to, but they are, they are full of wine and they, are, they can't even hear. So that even when they are seeing visions, they are drunk. Do you understand that? So even when they want to render decisions, they are stumbling because they are drunk. So this is the reason why 
even though Jesus drank wine, alcohol. Christians are not meant to be drunk with wine. Because, because it alters your states of consciousness. It alters your mind. It, it alters your sensibility. Praise God. And makes you to do things that you should not do. Causing you to walk in the flesh. And the Bible says that he that knows to do the right thing and does not do it, unto him it is what? Sin. Do you understand that? So that's why Christians, can, strictly speaking, can drink alcohol. Jesus drank alcohol. The apostles drank alcohol. But none of them ever got drunk. So that means that if you're supposed to be drinking alcohol, it's supposed to be something like you're drinking it not to get drunk. Do you understand that? Church, are we together? That's the truth, though. I cannot, I cannot tell you that the Bible says that you should not drink alcohol. The truth is that the apostle Jesus, our Jesus, that the night first, after he drank alcohol, was not grape juice. <laughs> right? Verse 9. He now says, Who is he trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? So, the leaders cannot hear the message because they are drunk. So it's his people that he will now become, like he said earlier, he's going to be the shining crown for those people. Now say, is it to children who are weaned from milk or to those he has just taken from the breast? For it is do this and do that. A rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. So these people cannot hear. And he's trying to teach them something. He now says, very well then. Because they cannot hear, very well then. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to these people. To whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest and the place of repose. Hallelujah. So God, Jesus, um, Isaiah foreseen by the Spirit, talked about the people who are drunk in their complacency and self-awareness and self-assuredness. And God is trying to speak to them. God now says, the time is coming when I will speak to these people with foreign lips and a strange tongue. Hallelujah. What is foreign lips and a strange tongue in this context? Right? The words there are the language of a different country. A strange language with foreign lips. That means the, the lips of people from a foreign land and strange tongues. That means the language that they have not learned before. That is not their language. That's what God is going to use to speak to them. He's not talking about gibberish as far a meaningless language. He's talking about the language of another land. Do you understand that? He's talking about the language of another land. To, to put it in context, look at, look at, let's look at, let's do a cursory look at all of the Old Testament whenever the Bible talks about or the prophets talk about foreign lips or foreign tongue or strange language, right? Genesis 11, very popular. We know the story of the Tower of Babel. Let's just read from verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language... They have begun to do this. Then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world and from there the Lord scattered them all over the face of the earth. Church, all together. So you see, he says, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. What is the reason why they did not understand each other? Is it because the language was meaningless? No. But because the language was not the same. Church, do you understand that? The reason why the language was meaningless or confused was because the language was not the same. Not because the language they were speaking was meaningless. Right? Isaiah chapter 33.
this um this is a story of this is a prophecy of I don't want to read the whole thing in context and all that. So this is a story of um comfort, uh, a prophecy of comfort to the people of um to the people of Judah about God staying the hand of the destroyer and everything. So let's just jump to verse 18. In your thoughts, you will ponder the former terror. Where is that chief officer? Where is that one who took the revenue? Where is the officer in charge of the towers? You will see those arrogant people no more. People whose speech is obscure, whose language is strange and incomprehensible. Do you see that? Do you see that? It says... There are some of these people, so there are some people that came from a foreign country. There are a lot of prophecies that are actually about this, where God is telling them that the people from a foreign land will come and oppress them, right? And so those people that come from a foreign land that are oppressing them will obviously speak a different language from them, and those people will be taking tax and revenues from them and all that. So Isaiah is prophesying here, and he's saying that those people that are oppressing you, those arrogant people, you will see them no more. But watch this. He now says, people whose speech is obscure, whose language is strange and incomprehensible. Church, do you see that? So, what makes the language strange? What makes the language incomprehensible? Is because it is from a strange land. Do you understand that? What makes the language strange to the Israelites, what makes the language incomprehensible to the Israelites, is that it is from a strange land. It is not that the language is a meaningless language. It is just meaningless to you because you don't understand the language. George, do you see that? Let's go on. Jeremiah chapter 5. Again, another scripture in context, but we can't read the whole chapter. Let's just go straight to it. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 15. People of Israel declares the Lord, I am bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. So, what makes the language, why is it that they don't know the language? Why is it that they don't understand the language? Because the language is from a distant nation. Church, do you see that? It's not so, when a Jew is talking about a strange language, a foreign tongue, what he's talking about is a language that has meaning to some people, but it's meaningless to them because it is from a strange land. So, when a when a Jew, in the Old Testament, whenever you see people talking about foreign tongues and foreign languages, they are always referring to xenolalia, not glossolalia. Church, all together. Do you see that? Look at Ezekiel chapter 3. Here is an interesting one. Ezekiel chapter 3 from verse 4. Here God sends Ezekiel to go and speak to the children of Israel, his own people. And look at what he says. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and strange language, but to the people of Israel, not to many peoples of obscure speech and strange languages whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me, for all the Israelites have hardened their hearts and are obstinate. Do you see that? So, Ezekiel, God is telling Ezekiel that I'm sending you to people whose language you understand. I'm not sending you to people whose language you don't understand because you speak the same language and your language is not obscure. Do you understand that? Church, all together. Do you understand that? Praise God. So, I checked. In all of the Old Testament, 
whenever we are talking about foreign tongues, whenever you are talking about a strange language, you are always referring to the language of a people whose language you have not understood. That is what the apostles were reading when they were reading the Old Testament. Their understanding of foreign language, of foreign tongues, of strange tongues, was not glossolalia because it is not, glossolalia is not in the Old Testament. There is no gibberish in all the prophecies in the Old Testament. You can check, right? You know I'm not whining you. There is no glossolalia in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, whenever the apostles are speaking, or whatever the Jews are reading about foreign tongues, the assumption is that the language being spoken is a language of a people that are not your countrymen, and therefore you do not understand their language. Are we together? Amen. So, having understood the Old Testament background, right? So let's now go to Pentecost, when it first happened. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, from verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, it sounded like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 4 again. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit enabled them. They began to speak with other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Hallelujah. One of the things you must understand about the book of Acts is that the, the book of Acts is a history book. is a documentation of things that happened as people observed it. So, its primary purpose is descriptive. The, pri the primary purpose of the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. Follow and listen to what I'm about to say. Now, this is proper theology because people now do leg over with this thing. It is true, the book of Acts is an account, is a historical account that is primarily descriptive. That means what Luke was doing was not trying to teach us stuff. He was trying to document things as they happened so that we can be aware of what happened. However, by watching and listening to what was described, we can take some prescriptions. Do you understand that? By, listening, by reading what was described, we can take some prescriptions. That means, when, even though Luke was not, trying to, was not writing Acts as a sermon note, but describing what happened, when he describes to us some of the things that Paul did, and Paul has told us to emulate him as he's emulating Christ, then we know that Paul's action has become prescriptive for us and not descriptive. Do you understand that? Do you understand that now? When we see some things that Peter did, even though Luke writing it was descriptive, we saw what Peter did and were emulating the apostles, the foundation of our Christian work, his action has become prescriptive for us. When he describes some things that are happening, it can add to our theology and our epistemology to understand what is going on. So he says that the Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in other languages. What are these other languages? What, how do we understand these langu other languages? What do these other languages mean? Verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. 
First of all, you need to understand this. Jews are not a homogeneous... Um, um, the post... The post... Um, second, the Second Temple Era. In this Second Temple Era, the post-exilic period, we're talking about when Judea became a nation on its own under the Roman Empire. By this time, the Jewish nation was not a homogeneous language um, culture. In fact, there was no even Jewish language at that time. What you had was Aramaic and Greek. Greek was the lingua franca, right? Many of the apostles' names were actually like Greek names. Mark was a Greek name. Do you understand that? Cephas is a Greek name. Do you understand that? Um, Andrew is a Greek name. All those apostles were all... And because of where they were living as a major shipping um, city at that time on the Mediterranean, they were you know, doing a lot of things with Greeks. After um, Alexander the Great had conquered all that period and that, that entire region and had Hellenized everywhere, Greek became like English. Everybody was speaking Greek to the extent that people forgot their Jewish language and then... Um, um, what's the name of that um, Seleucid emperor? He now had to transfer, he had to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, which is what, they, what we now call the Septuagint. Do you understand? So that the Bible, Old Testament, will not be lost to the Jewish people because the Jewish people are now speaking Greek. Do you understand that? At least most people in the Mediterranean. Now, these people are spread all over the world. If you know how, um, you know, the way the Jews are, they spread all over the world. But because the temple had been rebuilt, they now had a home that they could come back to for Elia. So they come back for Ilea from wherever their different countries are. Literally, that's actually what it means, right? They come back home for um, pilgrimage for Ilea whenever they're having the Feast of Pentecost, right? So, first of all, understand that the Jewish were not um, um, one language speaking. Because even in Judea, they were speaking two languages. They were speaking Aramaic and Greek at that time. Even the people living in Galilee, in Judea, were speaking Aramaic and Greek. And then people that come from other nations, they were not, they were not even the same race anymore. Yes, they were not even the same race. <laughs> everybody assumed that everybody, every Jew in, um, in Judea, all of them look like, um, like Ben Shapiro. No, Ben Shapiro is a white man. He's not a Jew. He's, okay, well, he's Jewish, but he's a white man. They're not even the same race. Some of them were from North Africa. Some were black, like Joseph of Arimathea. Lucien the Nigerian was a black person. Some of them were from Ethiopia. They were black people. They were Jewish. So what makes you a Jew or a Judaic person is that you believe the Old Testament. Do you understand? Even the dispersion had happened and the genes had mixed. After um, Assyria came first, then Babylon came second. Babylon came second. Babylon packed all of them. Pack them and scatter them. And God now told Jeremiah that he should tell them that they should not worry. That they should just, they should marry. They should marry in those countries and mix with them and all that. So, the people that they packed to Babylon, they became Babylonians. Do you understand? People that scattered and ran to Spain, they became Spanish. People that went as far east as Medes and Persia, at the, at the steps, at the, you know, the, the, um, the Mongolian steps, they became Medes and Persians. People that became Greek, became Greek. Do you understand that? Church, are we together? So, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God fearing men, Jews from every nation. When they heard this sound, a, cr a crowd came together in, in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. So the writer, Luke, is commenting. He uh, made his own commentary. And his own commentary was that the, what they observed was that every... Um, each one, that means the people that heard came from different places, 
heard their own language being spoken. So their own language being spoken is not one language because even if you want to say it's one language, which one, Aramaic or Greek? Do you understand that? Even if you want to say it was one language, which one, Aramaic or Greek? So obviously, what he's saying is that the people that were there from these different countries of the world, they were hearing people speaking their own language. So Luke first makes that comment. Then he goes ahead to say seven, verse seven. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that, we, that each of us hears them in our native language? So he notes, these people are Galileans. So that means that these people are from a country. How come they are speaking our language? If you are speaking the same language as a person, because you are from the same tribe, you will not be asking where the person is from and be saying, how come you are from so-so-so place and you are speaking my language? There's no surprise there. Do you understand that? There's nothing surprising about someone from your village speaking your language. Are we together? Are you clear? Listen or follow. Then, he now goes ahead to mention where they were from. He said, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. So that means that there were some people who were even probably genetically, um, biologically from genetic pool, were from a very total different country and converted to Judaism. Some of them said, you are speaking in our own language, making it hard to further say that the language spoken was the language of the Jews. Church, all together. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. Praise God. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? So, if it was the same language they were speaking, it would not be amazing. Obviously, the amazement came from the fact that we were speaking something in a language. If it was the same language, it would not be amazing. So, by the standard um, you know, principles of hermeneutics, the reasonable conclusion from this is that these people were speaking languages that were not their language, which is in keeping with what we've seen in the Old Testament, that a foreign language is a language that is not your language, and not gibberish. So are we together? Are we together? Do you understand that? 13. Some, however, made fun of them that they had too much wine. Right? The writer did not tell us the exact reason why they said that they had too much wine, but something about the way they were doing, either from the way they were talking or from the way they were prophesying or what, whatever, made them sound like too much wine. And you know, some people have said that it was the glossolalia that make them, you know, someone speaking gibberish. That means if someone, you know, if someone is speaking actual gibberish, you can say the person is drinking too much wine. But, you know, um, the evidence does not stack up. And this is the reason why the evidence does not stack up. When you say someone is drunk, when you observe someone and you look at someone and say the person is drunk, what are the things that people do that make you assume that they are drunk? Is it possible for a person to be speaking English to you and you know the person is drunk? I mean, you understand English to each other, right? For example, let's use Pidan now, right? 
Is it possible that Pidan can be speaking English to me? And he'll be acting a certain way, and I'll say he's drunk. Is it possible? Obviously, right? I mean, obviously. It's just the rhetorical, it's just practically a rhetorical question. What are the things that Daniel will be doing while speaking English and Yoruba that we both understand that will make me say he's drunk? It's not the way. <laughs> it's not the way he's acting. Praise God. So that means that when the observers, the, some people among them, said that they, they are drunk with wine, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's because they heard them speaking gibberish. It just means the way they were acting. So a person can be speaking the language you are hearing, and the person will be acting drunk, which makes sense. Have you seen someone under the influence of the Spirit before? Have you been in a believer's meeting before? Have you seen someone prophesying in English before that looks drunk? So that's why Apostle Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be drunk with the Spirit. It's not necessarily about you speaking gibberish. It's about the way you are acting. What makes a person drunk is the way the person is acting. Do you understand that? So you now see a bunch of people gather around together and are saying, Jesus, and they are prophesying and talking about how great God is and everything. And they are laughing. They kill them, you know, laughing in the spirit. <laughs> glory to God. Glory to Jesus. He has died and he's alive. Just like the Lord spoke concerning our fathers and everything. Let's say they are speaking in the Elamite language and everything. And then they now speak it in the understanding of the people that don't understand Elamite language and everything. And they are laughing in the spirit and they are drunk and they are falling and staggering. What will you say? Praise God. So it's reasonable, it's, it's actually, I don't want to use strong words, but, you know, to try to invalidate the testimony of Luke, the commentator, and the description of the people that were there on the basis of this verse alone is not fair. Do you agree with that? That means that what, call, what they call drunk is not gibberish, but the way they were acting. Church all together. Now let's go on. Then Peter stood up with eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by Prophet Joel. In the last days, God, um, God says, I will pour out my spirit on the people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Hallelujah. So Peter now goes to now explain to us from Scripture what is actually happening. He's telling us that they should not be surprised at what is happening. What Joel prophesied is finally happening. And the Spirit of God has come upon people. And just like God said, he says people will prophesy, they will dream dreams, and they will see visions. Hallelujah. Right? So, you know, there's, you know it has been said. It has been said that um, Peter said here that the people shall prophesy. So that means that what people did was that they spoke gibberish, and then they prophesied. And that's what the people heard. Praise God. Just like I said earlier, if, 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 if you want to say they prophesied, in which language? That's number one. Number two, this, um, this scripture does not, um, this, scripture, this scripture is not a um, commentary on the, of, um, this scripture is actually a commentary on the entire disposition of the spirit to God in the New Testament. It is not a limitation on what can be understood of what happened here. This is what I mean. He says, he mentions a lot of things that they will do, which Luke did not address that they did. He says, Joel says they will prophesy. He says they will see visions. He says they will dream dreams. 
He says he will do wonders in heaven and on the earth and billows of smoke. So that means that Joel's prophecy was pointing to the fact that in those days, God is going to do all kinds of different signs and wonders through his people that people will see and will be shocked at. Do you understand that? Just as they are seen there. So, um, you know, what Peter is saying here is not like, it's not like saying that, um, it's not, because it has been said that what Peter is trying to say is that those people were only prophesying. No. Church out together. Because Peter also talks about, Joel also says that he would dream dreams. Does he talk about them dreaming dreams? Does he talk about them seeing visions? Does he talk about blood in the sky and moon on the earth? No. Paul is just doing a commentary on the post-resurrection events of the Holy Spirit in the believers. Do you understand that? Showing that this one is just a part of that movement. He's not saying that this commentary, this prophecy, is everything happening in this movement. Do you understand? It's showing that that movement, Acts chapter 2, is a part of what is coming. Do you understand that? He's saying what you are seeing here is in accordance with what Joel said. So it's just a part of what is coming. You have not seen anything. Dreams are coming. Visions are still what? Coming. All kinds of signs and wonders are still coming. So don't be shocked because this one is small. That's what's happening there. So Peter is not saying, ah, he's only professing that we're prophesying. No, no, that's not, obviously not Peter's intention. Church out together. Please, are you following me? You know, there are also a lot of um, logistical questions about what happened there. You know, logistical questions like, how can 120 people may have been speaking different languages and people have been hearing them? It is whatever... Wait, it's possible for 120 people to be speaking the same language and people will hear them. It's the same way they were speaking different languages and people will hear them. Church all together. Whether they were all speaking the same language, they were not speaking in unison. They were speaking at each other's pace. And they were interspersed in a crowd so that the people around each person had a group of people around him that he was talking to that heard what he was saying. Do you understand that? So you're hearing what this person is saying. Then you hear what that person is saying. And you hear what that other person is saying. So whether you are all of them are speaking the same language or whether all of them are speaking different languages is the same logistical problem. Church all together. So 120 people speaking maybe 20 different languages, maybe in groups or whatever the logistics is. You come up to the market and you're passing on a wonderful Pentecost morning after having the Peace of the Pentecost. And as you're going, you can hear people talking in different ways in the market and everything. And as you're passing, you just hear one person speaking one language. It's like, ah, what's in the apple for this place? This one is speaking my language. Saying, hey, so you're from me. This is a guy, guy. Welcome to town. This one is speaking my language. And I want that person. And that person say, ah, another person is passing a different place. And I hear that person say, ah, so what's going on here? All these guys are speaking different languages. They are human beings now. They're not children. They're not goats. It's easy to understand. So we're together. So there is no real logistical question there. Whatever logistical question makes it impossible for these people to be having xenolalia also makes it impossible for them to be prophesying. Unless they were speaking in unison. The Lord is good. 120 people. The Lord is good. His son died for us and rose again. Unless that's what they were doing, then the problem is the same. Church, do you understand that? Are we together? Hallelujah. Then... I looked at, you know, look, take a look at the, some other scriptures that talks about new languages. Mark chapter 16, verse 17. And these signs will accomplish those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, 
and they will speak with new languages. The word new, dear, is kainos, which means new, novel, new languages. New languages. And there's another thing I noticed about the Greek. There's the word, there's glossa and there's glossy in different parts. You see that thing happening a lot in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. There's glossa and there's glossy. So here's the plural. They will speak with new languages. They will speak with new languages. It is only xenolalia that can be plural. It is meaningful languages that can be new languages. There is only one form of gibberish. Nonsense is nonsense. Do you understand? There is no nonsenses. Nonsense is nonsense. <laughs> you are laughing. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? There are no different types of gibberish. There is only one type of gibberish. Gibberish is gibberish. What you are saying does not have meaning. I'm saying meaningless languages. I don't want to use syllables that could be actual tongues so that I don't confuse anybody. A person speaking, let's assume, a person is doing, and let's assume, let's assume it's possible, funny enough, theoretically it's possible that that is actually a language. But let's not get hung up on that. Do you understand that? I'm trying to just give an example. Follow me. I've prayed for you. God will expand your mind. You can understand what I'm saying. Let's assume that is gibberish. That means it is absolute nonsense. There is no new there's no plural for it. Do you understand? There's no plural for gibberish. It is a meaningful language that you can say you will speak with new languages. Meaningful languages are the ones that are plural. You have Igbo, Hausa, Spanish, Chinese, different languages. If the language is meaningless, it's singular. Gibberish is gibberish. There, is, there are no two types of xenolilia and um, glossolalia. Glossolalia is glossolalia. But there are different kinds of languages. Church, are we together? So if you're going to check the word, it says fresh, new, novel. And then um, folks have said that the word fresh, new, novel, dear, means that it has never existed before. No. That is an unfair. That's, unfair. that's no exegesis. That is exegesis. You see, um, I'm, I'm, I'm moving into a new house. Does that mean that the house has never existed before before you moved into it? No, let's present it. When you go and check the use of the word kainos and lose all the places in the New Testament where it is used, it is not used for things created ab initio. Do you mean of ab initio? Who does not mean of ab initio? I have problems. People will be reading books so, and be reading English, but I cannot be explaining myself every time. People are stressing me. Ab initio means, is Latin for from the scratch. Yes. <laughs> it means new, has never existed before. New is not always ab initio, obviously, right? It's not just something that needs to be explained. New is not always ab initio. New can also mean new with reference to the person. Church, out together. So if you say you are moving to a new house, it could mean two things. It means that the house, you just built it. It could also mean that someone was living there before and you moved into it. Church, out together. Interestingly, when you go and check the use of the word kainos in all of the New Testament, which that they use to qualify new languages, it is hardly ever used for ab initio. It's usually used for a new day, a new event, something that has happened before, but is new to the person that is, is referring to. Do you understand that? So guys have said that when it says new languages, it means that they will speak with a language that has never existed before. So no human being has ever said that language before. That is an unfair, that's not exegesis. At the very least, you should at least honor the fact that new dear could also mean 
uh, non abinitio. Church, are we together? Church, do you understand what I said? Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Don't worry, I'm almost done. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 10. To another miraculous powers. To an, he's talking about the gift of the Spirit. To another prophecy. To another distinguishing between spirits. To another speaking in different kinds of languages. Hallelujah. The word kinds there is, the word, the word different kinds is a word that was used to help the word kinds. Because, you know, that's one thing I always tell people. Please don't assume that you know Greek more than those that translated it to English. You don't know Greek like them. Many times I just say, this word was not in the original, it was not in the original Greek. As if you know more than the person that translated it. The person that translated it, that can speak Greek fluently and understand Greek history for the past 5,000 years, that judge that the translation will make sense to put that word, you know more than him. It was not in the original translation. You have to be humble with that. Praise God. Right? So, actually, the word in the, in the Greek reads something like, um, to another speaking in kinds of tongues, families of tongues, nations of tongues. The word genos there, kinds, is kinds of tongues. But in the Greek, it makes sense. In the original Greek, when the person says you are, you, are, you are speaking different races of tongues, different countries of tongues, different nations of that's the meaning of the word genos, different families of tongues, the Greek person understands that what you're talking about is that you're speaking another country's language. That's what the meaning of the word genos means. It literally means race, country, nation. Different nations, um, different nations of this thing. But if you just write it in English and say, speaking nations of tongues, will it make sense? Will it make sense? Speaking races of tongues, of course. So the person translating now said, no, in English, the equivalent would be different kinds of languages. Do you understand that? So, Apostle Paul tells us here that God gives these gifts and it is different nations of tongues, different races of tongues, different nations of languages, different families of languages. Gibberish, glossolalia, cannot have different nations of tongues. There's only one type of gibberish. Gibberish is what? Gibberish. It is xenolalia, a language that has meaning, that can be different types or different nations or different families. The word genus there is different family, different nations, and all that, and all that. So when I studied everything down, I now said, so what is the problem? Why do we in Pentecostalism assume? Now, I want to say something at this point. And we'll still get to it. The fact that he has been talking about the fact that we have been seeing from Scripture that um, epistemologically speaking, this thing is most likely Zinolila is talking about does not also mean that every xenolalia can be understood by a living person. Do you understand that? Theoretically speaking, it is possible that a xenolalia cannot be understood by any living person. Do you understand? Theoretically speaking. For example, if I start speaking ancient Babylon, there's nobody on the earth now that understands it. It is still Xenolalia. Do you understand what I'm saying? Make I even bust your head. There are some languages that can be made. J.R. Tolkien, that wrote Lord of the Rings, wrote 17 languages, full proper languages that you can speak. 
17. Assuming I speak one of them, or assuming I speak a language that has not yet been made by human beings, or has not yet been concocted by human beings, it still qualifies as xenolalia in a sense. Do you understand that? Even though no man can understand it. So do you understand what I'm saying to you? Do you hear what I just said now? Theoretically speaking. So let's go on now. So like I said earlier, right? So when people get to 1 Corinthians 14, people usually read it based on where they're coming from. So looking at the Old Testament and judging by the antecedents of the commentaries on tongues or lang other languages in the New Testament, let's now read 1 Corinthians 14. And let's read it afresh. And let's judge, honestly. He now says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue or who speaks in language. Now, there's something you will see going forward. I, I actually first noticed this when I was reading Papa Makato's commentary. And then I now later saw it in the Apologetic Study Bible and I saw it in the other ones. Paul did something very interesting in this book that almost confused me for like two weeks. I was just like, okay, really? Paul kept switching between singular and plural. He kept switching between singular and plural for other languages. In a place, he would say glossa, that is a tongue. In another place, he would say glossé, other languages. Glossa, glossé, glossa, glossé. And it did not even seem to rhyme. When Bamakata was going to look at it, what he said was that glossa refers to meaningless glossolalia that the people like the priest, priestesses of Delphi were using. And that Paul was actually being subtly sarcastic. Just look at the Bible like this. If I give you backhand, subtly sarcastic. So his own commentary is that a tongue is actually referring to glossolalia, and in tongues or in other tongues, in other languages, is referring to xenolalia. And that you will notice that Paul was saying, I speak in other tongues, meaning xenolalia. But when he's referring to them, he says, You speak in a tongue, glossolalia, that he's mocking them that their own tongues is not real. And his own is the real one. That's his own commentary. And I was now saying that. And so that's why you will notice that that's, the way, that's why it was changing from a tongue to a tongue. And everybody does not follow. Because by the time you get to some verses, Paul says that a tongue is praying in the spirit. Shut up. I now notice something. You know? And I'm going to tell something about it. All oh, these people. Them too, they are funny. They are, maybe they are as bad as Pentecostals because they are choosing what they like. I noticed that when you go to the part where Paul says praying in a tongue is praying in the spirit, he didn't even talk about it in his commentary. Shabia was telling you. He, he omitted it. So he was commenting on the parts that favor his theory. The parts that did not favor his theory, he now omitted it. Go and check. I say, bye-bye. You are in Dabuski, what's the difference? After that, he will be abusing... Oh, okay, sorry, I didn't mean to be too hard, but... They are the ones always abusing Pentecostals that they don't know how to read the Bible. They are always speaking and choosing. But he did the exact same thing. I was shocked. Why would you do that? Because you want to discredit charismatic gifts. You will make up your theory and use the one that favors you. When you get to the verse that does not favor you, you will now omit it as if you do not see it. And go to the next one. Church, I was together. So, when I now prayed very, very well, my brain came down. I now you know, understood you know, what he was saying. It, it was, there was no real this. There was no... Is there was no big deal. It's actually about the grammar. If you read it in the original Greek, it's just about grammar. It's not deep. So, you know what? Let's read it in... Um, let me read it in the um, International Standard Version of um, the Project Study Bible so it will even be very clear. This is our English. So it's easy for you to understand. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts and above all that you may prophesy. 
For this person who speaks in another language is not speaking to men, but to God, since no one understands him. However, he speaks mysteries in the spirit. So when I studied everybody's commentary on it, I found out that the one scripture upon which the idea that tongues is glossolalia and gibberish is the entire idea is resting on this single verse. No man understands him or no one understands him. But it is not a good foundation. It's not a good cornerstone. Let's read that verse very well. For the person who speaks in another language is not speaking to men but to God since no one understands him. However, he speaks mysteries in the spirits. How can he say no one understands? Just like I said earlier, is either absolute or what? Relative. So let's assume that it is absolute, just like gibberish. How can he be saying that it is absolutely no man understands him and they now say, however, in the spirit, he utters mysteries. The word mysteries there means secret. It's not mysterious. It just means secret. It means something that people do not know. It's from Gnostic, um, you know, tradition. When you say some, some, something that is mysterion, mysterion just means secrets that people don't know. It's something that has meaning, but people don't know it. So he now says, however, by this spirit, he utters secrets. He utters. That means, you know, mean of utter, he speaks. So that means that what is coming out of his mouth has meaning, even though it is hidden to the person he's talking to. So it cannot be glossolalia. What does that mean? No man cannot be absolute. It can only be relative. That means, just like the Old Testament, just like all the places that we read, it means that the person that he's talking to or the people in that place do not understand what he is saying because it is a secret to them. It is a mystery. So all together. Let's read on, you understand. And thank God Paul for that explains. He says, But the person who prophesies speaks to people for edification, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in another language builds himself up, but he who prophesies builds up the church. So what builds up people is what they can understand. Do you understand? So that means that you can be praying in the Spirit. And like we'll see going forward, praying in the Spirit is actually something that happens in the spirit of a man. Right? When you are praying in the spirit, you are building yourself up, even though you don't understand what you are saying. But for someone who is not praying in the spirit, if you want to edify the person, you have to speak what the person can understand for the person to hear and be built up. Do you understand that? I wish all of you spoke in other languages. That's another thing that is very important. Even in the early church, not everybody spoke in tongues. Did you know that? You don't know? Yeah. Even in the, the first church, not all of them that spoke for some reason. I don't know. They didn't tell us why. It's not all of them that spoke. That's why even in 1 Corinthians 12, Apostle Paul was asking them, that is all of you that speak in tongues. Not everybody. For some reason, I don't know why. He says, I wish all of you spoke in other languages, but even more that you prophesy. The person who's, who, this is a place where Makatos, this thing does not follow. When he says, I wish, anyway, let's go on. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in languages, unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. But now, brothers, if I come to you speaking other languages now, you see something very interesting now. He says, but now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in other languages, 
how will I benefit you unless I speak to I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even inanimate things that produce sounds, whether the flute or the harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the trumpet makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? See now. He now says, in the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking to the air. So, He's telling us why it is mysteries now, why it is unknown, why no man understands. He's explaining no man understands. You will see the meaning of no man understands. Verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world. And all have what? There are doubtless different kinds of languages in the world. And all have what? Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language... I will be a what to the speaker, and the speaker will be a what. So, what is the meaning of no man understands? It's a foreigner. Which is consistent with the Old Testament. The trade is the same from old to new. What makes it other tongues is not that it is gibberish, it is that the person listening, no one understands, means the person listening does not is a foreigner to that language. He says there are different languages in the world and none of them is without what? Meaning. So actually, if we read this scripture without hermeneutic grid in our minds, our first assumption will not be to think that our gibberish has no meaning. Because what Paul says is that none of them is without meaning. That is why it is a secret. That's why it's a mystery. Not because it is meaningless, but because it is unknown to you, the listener. None of them is without meaning. So this idea that no man understands means absolutely no man understands. That's not what Paul is actually teaching. If we reason it well. No, don't bother thinking about the implications. What if, and, and so, thus follow. He now says, So also, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building of the church. Therefore, the person who speaks in another language should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another language, my spirit prays, and my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. And this was something for you to hear well. This is another thing for you to understand. Praying in the spirit is not limited to praying in other languages. When you are praying in other language, it does not mean that when you start praying the understanding, you came out of the spirit. Do you understand that? In this, he's explaining something in this context, talking about that when a man is praying in the spirit and he's manifesting, he's, ex- he's exercising the gift of speaking in other languages. He's praying in the spirit, and what is coming out of his mouth is Mysterion, right? He's, he's praying in the spirit, and Mysterion is coming out of his mouth. And he now says that Mysterion is not helpful for those that are dead because it's like foreign man language to them. So he says it's better for it to what? Interpret to them. So he now says, What will I do? I will pray in the spirit. Because he has already t- talked about it as Mysterion. I'll pray with the understanding also. He now says, I will pray with the understanding. So that means that even when you're praying with the understanding, is in the spirit. Because the understanding is of the spirit. Do you understand that? So this idea that the only time when we say pray in the spirit is only when you're speaking in other languages. That's when you're praying in the spirit. No. Actually. Because the implication, <laughs> there are many implications. 
Implication is that all the Christians, he just told them now. Implication is that all the Christians who, do, who have never spoken in tongues have never prayed in the Spirit. Obviously, that's not true. It means that all the Christians who are deaf and dumb cannot pray in the Spirit. <laughs> you don't talk about that. It means Christians who are deaf and dumb cannot pray in the Spirit. No. Walking in the Spirit. I was in the Lord's, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Talks about doing an activity, exercising your reborn spirit. So when you want to pray, your consciousness, your spirit is, your inner man is praying to God. You are praying in the spirit. When you have the gift of speaking in other tongues, you can actually speak that language, that mysterion out. And if you keep your mouth shut and you are groaning and you're in travail, you are also in the spirit. And if it comes out with a melody, you are also singing in the words, spirit. Do you understand that? And if a deaf and dumb person who cannot talk mm, 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 is praying, he's praying in the spirit. Do you understand that? Church, do you understand that? So you don't think that praying in the spirit is only when you are pacing the ground and, you know, speaking in tongues and all that. No. Praying in the spirit is actually a function of what the spirit of the inner man is doing. Hallelujah. Verse 15. What then? I will pray with the spirit and I also pray with my understanding. I will sing with the spirit and also will sing with the spirit. Otherwise, if you pray with the spirit... How will the uninformed person say amen? You see that he used that word uninformed again, which is a, actually a word play on the word mysterion. Because in Gnostic tradition, when you use the word mysterion, mysterion is to those who are uninformed. Do you understand that? So the Gnostics will say, we are the enlightened. You are the unenlightened. Do you understand that? Let me not go into all those history. Anyway. At your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying. For you may be very well giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in other languages more than all of you. Yet in the church, I rather speak five words in my understanding in order to teach others than 10,000 words in another language. Church, all together. So, following standard you know, exegetical principles and hermeneutics, um, spraying in tongues is senolalia. However, and you should understand this. Paul suggests something in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which I want to, which I was not aware of, which I'm now adding to my understanding and also yours. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1 says, If I speak in a human or angelic languages, but do not have love, I am a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Some folks have said that he was, um, he was um, um, that this is just um, hyperbole, but it is not hyperbole because if you read all the other things that he used, it's not hyperbole. Gift of prophecy is not hyperbole. Mysteries and all knowledge and faith is not hyperbole. Faith to move mountains is literally what Jesus preached. Do you understand that? Donate my goods to feed the poor is not hyperbole. Christians were doing it regularly. Jesus even said the rich man should do it. Do you understand that? Read the whole of First Corinthians chapter 13. All the things that he said there were things that Christians normally do. It's not hyperbole. So to say that human tongues and human... Do you understand what I'm saying to you? So, so you cannot pick and choose what is hyperbole. It, you have to be consistent. You have to be rational in your reading of the Bible. So he says, if I speak in a human or angelic languages, what does that tell you? Paul is speaking from an understanding that no man understands him means those that are dear do not understand him. But it also means that no living, it can also mean no living person understands it. That's another part. Because there are two extremes on this thing. There are people that will say, like I have almost thought before, that every xenolalia must be the language that somebody in the world is speaking now. So your xenolalia must either be Chinese, 
or Yoruba or Igbo or something that somebody is speaking now. Do you understand that? There is that. So that's what Orthodox and Reformed people used to abuse us. They used to assume that Xenolalia means that language must be language that somebody can speak now. And then there's the other extreme that believes that all tongues is glossolalia, that it is gibberish, that it is not mysterious, it is not meaningful, that it is absolute rubbish. No. The answer is that it is no man understands. And no man can actually be no man. Do you understand that? Did you get that? No man can actually be no man. Even though 1 Corinthians 14 explains to us that it is people that are, you know, that is real, but no man can actually be no man. But what is the implication of all these things? It means you need to start honoring the gift of tongues that you have. You are not saying rubbish. You are not speaking rubbish. You are actually saying something. That's what makes it impressive. If it is mere nonsense, then there's nothing spectacular about it. A person does not need to be saved to have glossolalia. Walk into any Babalawo temple and give them Igbo. They will start doing Maka, Miko, Miki, Miki, Miki. Speaking gibberish is not impressive. That's why Acts chapter 2 amazed them. It's a supernatural ability to actually speak a language that has meaning that you never learnt. Even though the people listening to you don't understand it. Honor the gifts. When you are speaking in tongues, if you have the gifts, don't just... And when you are getting people filled, don't also diminish it for them and say, eh, say anything that's come to your mind. No, I don't want to say it the wrong way. Because... Uh, who has the spirit that understands what I'm about to correct now? There's a way you can say, say anything that's come to your mind. And what you are telling the person is, be saying rubbish, be saying rubbish. <laughs> no. It's actually a supernatural ability. At the same time, don't forget, even they themselves are foreigners to the language they're speaking. That is coming to their mind. And because they're foreigners to it, it will sound like rubbish to them. So at the same time, it's also correct to say, just say the rubbish. Because I told you, <laughs> Xenolalia is relative rubbish. Do you understand? Xenolalia is relative rubbish. So yes, you're speaking tongue, you're hearing Mikako, Mikako, Aga, you have to say it though. You have to actually say it. But at the same time, don't make tongues feel like um, rubbish, Nisha, I say rubbish. Don't be walking on the floor and say It's actually a privilege. It's a supernatural ability to speak a language. That's why you will notice that there are some kind of Believers' meetings that you will enter, that the, syllab, the, the, the syllables of your tongues will just take on a different form. That's why we can actually tell there are some people, you know, there are grades of this thing. Paul, Paul said, I speak in other languages more than you. There are some people that when they are speaking in tongues, and you say, Tongue lele ye. Tongue nikini ye. Have you heard Pastor Seku speaking in tongues before? <laughs> Seku. <laughs> right? There is actually tongues. Me, even myself, it happens to me. There are some times when I'm praying. Ah, there are some prayers where the syllables will be the same. There are some times where even me say, <laughs> This thing is. Uh, do you understand? You have to actually annoy. Please, let's not diminish this thing. That's what the guys outside are picking on. That is making them feel like as if you guys are just saying rubbish. Actually, what you are doing is not glossolalia. It is xenolalia. Even if no man understands you, you need to honor it. And exercise it and flex it. How can gibberish have an interpretation? 
Think about it. If it is absolute gibberish, total nonsense, how can you interpret? Gibberish means meaningless. There's no interpretation. So, I see you have to get freed out of that gridlock. So, Apostle Paul was never saying that our tongues are meaningless stuff. That's why it has an interpretation. When you are speaking in tongues, when you are praying, you are actually saying something. Even though those around you can understand. In some cases, God can actually give you the um, utterance to speak in a language that you never have never learned that somebody there can understand. There are people that have that experiences. You know, some people will say that maybe what God did is that he supernaturally gave that person the ability to understand your tongues. Theoretically speaking, if you want to philosophize, I won't say it's a lie. Right? I won't say it's a lie. But it's, you're just, you are just being, you're trying to be clever. If you want to go by the way this thing is, by the way the Bible explains it, look at my brother here. He will tell you. It has happened to my own dad before. It happened to my dad before. Right? You know, there was a time, in sometime around 97 or 98, we are still in Cardinal then before the religious crisis that chased us away. I've told you guys the story before. There was a financial crisis in the house. Things were not moving. And my father went to the office, to the supermarket, that was in Cardinal, and locked himself in the inner office and began to pray. I began to pray in tongues. I began to pray in tongues. I began to pray and he got, he got drunk and he was speaking loud. And he was praying and praying and praying and praying and blasting. And when he finished, he came out and one of my uncles, Uncle Lad then, came out and said, ah, daddy, when did you learn Urubu? My dad said Urubu, okay. Ah. He said, this customer that just walked in now, said he heard what you were saying. He said you were praying that God would bless the work of your hands, that God would prosper the shop. My daddy shocked. Ran home to my tell my mom. <laughs> he shocked her. Real life. This is not them. This is real life. My father is coming in two weeks' time. You ask him when he comes. If I'm lying. He shook him. One of them, what's the name of the man that did um, this commentary? Is it, um, um, is it, I, I keep saying I'll check it up and I keep forgetting. Um, is either Hapa Collins or one of them. He was very sick to death, unto death in his room. Very sick. About to die. And the nurse came in. She was a Christian. And it just happened early early 20th century, and she entered and she was attending to him, and she began to pray, and she was speaking in tongues, and she was attending to him, and guess what? Her tongues were Romans chapter 8, word for word, in the Greek. And because he's a Greek, he was an atheist that studied Greek, so he understood all those ancient Greek texts, like even the Bible and all that, and he recognized, he said, wow, you can speak Greek. He said, no, just speaking in tongues. He said, what do you mean? He said, I'm just speaking in tongues. He quoted Romans chapter 8 in the original Greek. Lord, I believe. <laughs> Help my own belief. He joined Society of Bible Translators. Church, I was together. So yes, there are times that it is possible. It happens. People in the north, northern Christians in Echo and all those places, they will tell you that they have these experiences from time to time where someone will burst out in a tongue and a stranger will hear his language. It happens. Do you understand? It happens from time to time. However, no man can actually understand. It's possible that no man understands. Church, do you understand that? So honor tongues, honor tongues, honor it, honor it. Take it seriously. When you are praying in the spirit, don't just say, yeah, um, you know what I'm doing. Take it seriously. It's an actual gift. If it was gibberish, it would, there would be nothing supernatural about it. Do you understand that? If it was gibberish, there's nothing supernatural. I've told you, my Muslim cousins imitate it. If it was gibberish, there's nothing supernatural about it. Church, I together. 
I know that today we can't ask questions. Maybe we'll just do part two tomorrow because I actually want to get into other things. All this part about women should be quiet in church and everything. I want to talk about it next week. So maybe we'll just we'll continue then and then we'll take questions then. Is that okay? All right. So let's bow our heads and please do me a favor. When you get home, read everything I've said. Study it for yourself and come back next week with questions so that we can talk about it. So let's pray. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.